If you have a Bible with you, how about if you uh, turn to Hebrews chapter 3. If you don't have one, you'll see a lot of these verses up on the screen, but there's also Bibles in the pew rack there in front of you. You can uh, use one of those and follow along if that would help you. Um, just a kind of a sideline before we get to the, the teaching. Um, you might see the drawings that are out on easels this morning when you came in, and if you haven't been here in a couple of weeks, you might be thinking, what's going on there? Um, some people have thought that we've already produced some blueprints, and actually what you see on those drawings that are on the easels in the atrium and here in the back of the auditorium are uh, sketches of what a uh, new facility could look like if God leads us that direction. So no, they're not blueprints, they're merely an idea of what things could look like if God takes us that way, and in a couple of weeks we hope to be able to share some uh, factual details with you about cost and square footage, and we'll make sure that you'll be the first to know that information. Well, before we get into Hebrews, can I invite you to pray with me that God would speak to us through this? Let's bow together. Father, we do indeed come before you and ask that you would be our teacher. And I know your Holy Spirit is present here already, but we would ask that your Holy Spirit would guide us. If we we approach this just from man's point of view, we, we will fail. So God, we would ask that your Holy Spirit, in a supernatural way, as you brood over this auditorium, that you would give us insight and understanding. And we would pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's a a phrase that you haven't heard from me in a couple months anyways. What you believe about God determines what you do next. Probably been a few months since I've shared that. I want to help flesh that out for you this morning. What you believe about God determines what you do next. I'm going to use a passage from um, the book of Proverbs that will kind of be an anchor for this teaching today. And it's, it's Proverbs chapter 3. It may be a verse if you grew up in church that you've known for a long time. Look with me at this passage. It says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean in your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and he will make your path straight. So what you believe about God determines what you do next. If you believe that you can trust God, and you can trust him to the degree that you absolutely can lean into him, that tells you in that passage right there that you can set your own understanding. In in other words, what you think, your feelings and your emotions, and you can set them aside and you can lean into God's word. So Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. If He's a trustworthy God, what you believe about God will determine what you're going to do next. So you don't lean in your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths straight. This is a really important passage that we're about to look at because it's repeating a story that's been told multiple times through the Bible. If you have your Bible open and you don't mind putting your finger in a few different places, In Psalm 95, you're going to find the same story told, and in Numbers chapter 14. Now, why is this thing told three times, even four times actually, throughout the Bible? Because what I'm about to share with you was so monumental in the life of the Israelites in in, in the Old Testament that this is a story they told over and over and over again because of what happened to them as a result of what they believed about God. Because what they believed about God really determined what they did next. So here's the background. If if you're looking at Numbers 14, you'll see it in kind of a a glance. But here's what happened. 
God has already used Moses to lead the children of Israel out of bondage in Egypt by the time you get to Numbers 14. And they've already been to Mount Sinai. They've already seen the Red Sea part. They've seen God appear in lightning, thunder, earthquakes. God has met all their needs. He's even given them a massive pillar of fire. And I'm talking about something big enough for three million people to see. It wasn't just an eight-foot tower. This is something visible from a long distance away. God gave them all this evidence and said, I'm going to take you to a promised land, what we would call in the Bible the land of Canaan. It's where the Canaanites lived, modern-day Israel. So by the time you get to Numbers 14, you're encountering this region known as Kadesh Barnea. And the children of Israel have arrived there. And they're literally at the border of the promised land. What God tells Moses to do is appoint 12 men, one man, one man from each of the 12 tribes of Israel to go into the promised land, into Canaan, and to see if it really matches up to what they've been told, just to encourage their hearts. And God has told them, this is a land flowing with milk and honey. they got grapes in there that are as big as basketballs. Just go in there, check it out, you'll see. So indeed, the 12 spies go in, they spy out the land, and they come back with a great report. They say, yeah, it's flourishing, it's green, the trees are brilliant there, the grapes are huge. Here's some samples, they brought back samples. But then 10 of the 12 men began to share a bad report. And they said, you know what? There's giants in that land. I mean, in their eyes, we were like grasshoppers. They're massive men. We can't go in there. They'll destroy us. Now, two of the ten, Caleb and Joshua, said, wait, no, they've got it wrong. Our God is great. Let's go. God promised it to us. But the ten won over the crowd. The ten convinced the three million, don't go there. Don't go into that land because we will be destroyed if we go there. See, what they believed about God really determined what they did next. They believed that God had provided for them at Mount Sinai. They believed because they had the pillar of fire, but they didn't believe God was big enough to do that because they were afraid. So it determined what they did next, and they said, yeah, you know, no thanks. And they walked away from the border. And God was incensed with them. In the Bible, in Numbers chapter 14, in Psalm 95, and as you're going to find in Hebrews chapter 3, it's known as the rebellion when God's people turned their backs on him. So go with me to Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 7. This is where we're going to pick up this morning. It says this, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Right there we've got evidence in verse 7 that the Holy Spirit is really the author of the Bible. When, When you look at a statement like there, therefore as the Holy Spirit says, it's telling us it's one of the clearest evidences. God wrote the Bible through men. Well, how do we know that? 2 Peter 1.21 For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. God originated the Bible, right down to the very words through these original men. Where does it say in the Bible that the Holy Spirit said that statement, verse 7 statement? Well, in Psalm 95. If you're sticking your finger there, you'll see these excerpts that I'm going to mention. You'll see them on the screen as well. In Psalm 95, here's what's going on. 
King David, who's living 800 years or so after the rebellion, is using the story of the rebellion to teach the people of Israel, don't harden your heart against God. And in Psalm 95, he says things like this. You'll see it on the screen, verse 8. Do not harden your heart. Verse 9, your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they had seen my work. Verse 10, for 40 years I loathed that generation. It is not a good day if God loathes you. You don't want to be in that place. And God loathed them for 40 years because they didn't trust him. They disbelieved him. So verse 8 says, do not harden your hearts. Well, what does that look like today? Well, here's what uh, Leon Morris said. To harden the heart is to disobey the voice of God and act in accordance with one's own desires. Now, how did they do that? Well, they did it in the rebellion. So here's just a little example for you of one incident. They did it over and over again. The capstone was when they got to the promised land and said, no, we're not going in. But one of the incidences leading up to that was a time when they were really thirsty. And God had been providing for them, but they wanted some water. Let me give you an example for you up on the screen from Exodus 17. I want you to see here the progression of a hard heart and how that develops over a period of time. Look with me at these examples, first of all. First from verse 1. It tells us there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water. Verse 3, And they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Verse 7, They tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Now when you look at verse 1, you'd love for it to say, The people were thirsty. And so they got on their knees. They said, God, would you give us water? But that's not what you see. What you see is, they went after God's man. They went after Moses and they quarreled with him and said, give us water. And then they grumble against Moses. Well, what's going on there? What you're looking at is the attitude. The attitude in the circumstances when things are not going the way they think they should go. Things are not playing out the way they thought they should play out. And they can't see God in the midst of their circumstances. And so it's producing an action. And this action leads to the argument. And what it's really revealing is the truth of their heart. See, what they really believe is that they don't believe that God has their best purposes in mind. This is a classic example of a lack of faith. So Israel put him to the test. The real purpose is spelled out there in verse 7. They tested the Lord. Is he among us or not? I mean, it doesn't feel like it. Things look like they're going really rotten. My emotions tell me that God's not in this. Now look how they test God. Is He among us or not? Now think about what these people have seen. Plagues in Egypt, hail, fire, parting of the Red Sea, shaking of the earth. And they're asking this question? What about in 2014? Can we do that same thing today? It's kind of participatory. Is, is it possible? Is it possible that we can forget how God was faithful in our past and we failed to grasp in the midst of the moment because the circumstances don't quite look like God is coming through for us? The reverse of that, the 180 degree view, is believing that what you're going through might really be for your good even though you can't see it in the moment. 
My Bible says that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him, for those who are called according to his word. It doesn't say that all things are going to go good all the time. It says he causes things to be good, that he will work it that way. See, what you believe about God really does determine what you do next. So verse 9 says, your fathers tested me and they saw my work. So he's putting a stress on the visible. They, they really saw what I did. But their attitude is this, God, just do this one more thing. Just this one more thing. Then we'll know that you're really real. Then we'll believe you. So God says, they saw my works. They've seen me in the wilderness. Yet they're doubting that he's willing. I don't think they're doubting that he's capable. I think they're doubting that he's really interested in this new challenge. See, when a person has a heart that wanders, if you match that up with a disbelieving heart, somebody who's already wandering away from his word, not spending time in the truth of God, and they begin to disbelieve God, you match those two together and you got the recipe for a hard heart. Someone who can't see God and the result is they become insensitive to the word and to the work of God. In their case, this is not a passing phase. This is something that went on and on and on and on and on to the point where God finally swore an oath that you're going to see in just a few moments. In other words, this is their attitude. Prove yourself to us again and then we'll trust you. Do you know that Jesus ran into the exact same attitude? First century, Jesus on planet earth, constantly having people come up to him and say, show us a sign, show us a sign, show us a sign, then we'll believe that you're real. Jesus finally said, you're not getting any more signs. I'm not going to do anything more for you. Except for the sign of Jonah, which was really an example of his crucifixion on the cross. Get your mind around this so you really consider what Israel had visibly in front of them. They had a GPS system like we've never seen before. They've got a pillar of fire that stretches up into the atmosphere that guides them, God showing them the way. Do you know that they had shoes on their feet in which the leather never wore out? It never, in 40 years, they never had to change their shoes. I don't know how they stunk, but I'm telling you that they, they didn't have to. The leather didn't wear out. According to the Bible, their clothes were as fresh as the day when they put them on. And they woke up every morning to breakfast in bed. God provided their food for them. It was called manna. They didn't even have to go out and work for it. All they had to do was pick it up. Day after day after day, provision of food, provision of water, clothes, shoes that never wore out. And yet, they're only satisfied for this really brief time, and then they begin to complain. This is a classic illustration of unbelief. Why? Because they never really owned it. It never was really real for them. So when things didn't go the way they wanted to, they quickly got over their trust of God. That's why he says in verse 7, and we'll put this back on the screen for you so that you see it. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. In other words, the writer of Hebrews is saying, hear me on this. Don't repeat what Israel repeated. Don't do what they did. The the today here means now. Literally, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, and you've heard the gospel story, this writer is saying, don't put it off. You don't even know if you have the next 24 hours. God is saying, today, act on what you know to be true. In the case of believers, we'll get into that in just a few more moments, but when God brings you an opportunity, your today is right now because tomorrow might be too late. I'll explain that a little bit more. Let's go to verse 10. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. 
Now, don't miss the really, really clear reference here to the anger of God. The Bible is clear. God is not indifferent to sin whatsoever. Have you ever, have you ever provoked someone before? Um, if you look at a, a sample of that, Cindy's the only one being honest in the room. Um, <laughs> if you look at a synonym for provoked in the English dictionary, it's the word vexed. I, I think I vexed my mother through my teenage years. I think I provoked her to wrath a few times. I, I know that we've all had that potential to provoke, and yet we don't really grasp what God is saying here. Let me put Psalm 95 for you back on the screen, and you see the way God said this. For 40 years, I loathed that generation. You don't want to be in the place where you cause God that kind of feeling. And this is what the children of Israel did. They always went astray in their heart, according to this passage. What does that mean? They persisted in sin. Now remember, these are God's chosen people. And yet they're persisting in sin. Now the heart here represents the entire being. In the Greek language, it's talking about the thoughts and the feelings and the will. Here's the thought behind it. Israel went all in being fully astray with all of their being. So God says in verse 10, they've not known my ways. And I have to stop right there and ask myself, how is that possible? I mean, they got Moses with them, church. He wrote Genesis. He wrote Exodus. Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. They've got the author of the first five books, and yet God says, they've not known my ways. How is that possible? You could see a pillar of fire. You could have the literal stone-carved Ten Commandments in front of you. And God can say of you, they've not known my ways. So they did know intellectually. They had possession of God's truth, so there must be something deeper going on here. What did they not know? Here's what it's telling me. They did not take the time or the trouble to get to know their God. What we talked about last week, consider Jesus, the writer of Hebrews said. What does that look like to consider Jesus, to get to know God? To the degree that you trust Him, Even when you're tempted to lean into your own understanding, your Bible says, lean into His ways, and He will make your paths straight. Here's where I think it happens. This is probably the crux of the breakdown for the children of Israel. They knew they were God's chosen people. They knew that God had called them out and set them apart as a holy nation. And I believe they were good with that. We're good. God said he's going to take us to a promised land. We're good. God chose us. We're good. But they never got to the place where they trusted God to the degree that God would take them to a new place, a a place of experience they had never known before. I want to help flesh that out for you because what we're talking about is this issue of a hardened heart, and I've been there. I know what a hardened heart looks like. I've had it myself. So I'm going to help you understand that in just a few minutes. But you see in verse 11 what God says as a result of their hard heart. He says, I swore in my wrath they will not enter my rest. Now, you have to understand what his rest is when he says that. Now, literally, that's when today is no more. Your todays are gone. When God says, I'm going to swear in my wrath they're not going to enter my rest. God's taken an oath. 
He's saying, so help me, me. It's not going to happen. It was a joke, you guys. Okay. <laughs> oh, who else is he going to swear by? I mean, it's him. God says, I'm swearing in, in my wrath. In other words, this is a, a complicated sentence in the, in the original language, but it says, if they do enter my rest, my name is not God. That's how serious this issue is. So what's he talking about his rest when he makes this kind of oath? Well, their rest in their case was the promised land, the land of Canaan, the the place of the Canaanites where Israel is at today. And they totally missed out on that opportunity. God said, you're not going to enter into it. So he sent them out into the wilderness for 40 years, 40 years of wandering. Have you ever spent some time in an RV unit or in a tent camping? A few of you? Who here has been out in a campsite at least a week? Who's been out like two weeks? Who's been out like 40 years? <laughs> Can you imagine going to Mount Sinai State Park for 40 years? I mean, the first two weeks of roasting the marshmallows would be pretty good. But there's a limit of setting up and tearing down and setting up and tearing down and setting up and moving and moving and moving. And you've got to build another campfire. And you've got to go gather more wood. See, God had said, I'll take you to a place where your rest is secure. Your anxiety is going to be gone. People won't be threatening you. You're going to be in your own land with your own homes, with your own gardens. You won't have to live like this. And yet they weren't willing to trust Him. And so that's why God sent them out. Now, the author in Hebrews takes a hard shift now. Instead of talking about the ancients, He begins to talk to those in the first century in verse 12. He's talking to the church. Verse 12 says this, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Now, I know that this verse here can be taken in two ways, and I think he's speaking to two groups, both believers and non-believers in Jesus. In other words, when he's speaking to the non-believers, these Jews that he calls brothers, racially his brothers, they're hearing the information. They know about who Jesus is. They hear the truth of the gospel, but he's got a warning for them. They're rejecting truth that is known, and that's spiritual fatality for them. But when he's talking to believers, and he's warning them that they're in danger of rejecting some truth, it's very, very clear what's going on here. This potential for an evil, unbelieving heart, we're talking about some people whom God is showing opportunity for, and they're tempted to commit apostasy. They're they're tempted to turn around from what they know is true. But for the unbelievers, for just a few moments, what do you do if you're God and you've presented your case, you've made the truth known, and someone says, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. I'm not interested. And they walk away. According to the Bible, that person is irretrievable. There's nothing more God can do for them if their heart becomes so hard, they completely reject it. According to Hebrews 6, 6, it says this, if you've got that type of person, if such, have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again. They heard the truth. They know who Jesus is, and they're saying, nah, not interested. Now, in the case of the people in Hebrews, if you've been here the last couple weeks, you know that this is being written to a group of people who are watching Christians die. Nero is throwing them in the Colosseum. They're being devoured by lions. They're being put to death with the sword of the gladiators. 
They're being used for nightlights. This is not a group of people who take this lightly. And the warning is very, very strong from the writer in Hebrews. So when he uses in verse 12 this phrase, fall away, in in my sense in the English language, that's not strong enough because it literally means rebel. To rebel against God. What are we rebelling against? We're not rebelling against some old dead doctrine. It says the living God. That you could rebel against the living God. That's who we're talking about here, church. Now, he, he makes this shift here. As far as the warning is concerned, that was verse 12, but look at the encouragement in verse 13. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Well, what does that look like to exhort a fellow believer? That means you're speaking into someone else's life. You're a source of encouragement. That's what the church is all about, that we would come alongside. That's what a biblical community means. It's just not a plaque out on our sign on the street. A biblical community means that we've linked arms together. We're speaking into each other's life. And do you see how urgent it is here? It says exhort one another every day. Literally, this is saying this should be a routine in your life. It's who I am to you. It's who you are to me. It's who we are to each other. Not just play in church, but that we're exhorting and encouraging. Why? Because there's a danger that we can be trapped in some repetitive sin behavior. And it, Literally, the, the picture here in the Bible is that we can get to the point where we get a callousness to our heart. That we get so caught up in sinful behavior, if someone's not exhorting us, that it can actually cause a callousness. You ever had a callus on your hand? Maybe you spent some time raking in the yard or done some digging and you build up a callus. That's a hard piece of flesh. The Bible's saying you can do that same thing to your heart. Or you're so active in sin that it just seems like no big deal. And you're constantly involved in it. Scripture says we've got to be exhorting each other. Believers locking arms together. Let me show you an example of that from Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10.23 says this, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembly together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. See, when you're in church and doing life together, you're fulfilling what God has called you to do. When you're here this morning, those who are filling the auditorium over this weekend, you're doing what God has called you to do. You're part of the body of Christ. And our objective in that is to open up clear opportunities so that we would encourage each other. That you would encourage your brother in Christ, your sister in Christ, speak into their lives. You want to hear a pathetic statistic in the United States? The average American Christian considers themselves a regular attender in church if they're in church two out of five Sundays in a month. I think that's absolutely pathetic. I'm not pointing fingers at anybody here. Just know that, okay? But think about this. If, if you're three out of five Sundays, that means somebody else is two. If you're four out of five, somebody else is one. If you're here all the time, somebody else is like a creaster at Christmas and Easter, okay? Just let that settle in for a minute, okay? If you're a regular attender, the averages are blown. Somebody else is not. And yet... Scripture says we're supposed to be exhorting each other, encouraging each other. That means we know each other to the degree that we can actually speak into each other's lives to encourage them, especially because of the potential of the deceitfulness of sin. That's what verse 13 says. Have 
You guys found sin to be deceitful like I have? Sounds like this. Oh, that's not so bad. God doesn't care about that. It's not such a big deal. Have you heard Satan say that? A liar. God does not wink at sin. God takes sin really seriously. So the writer here says in verse 14, here's the evidence that you're really part of the household of God. He says, if indeed we hold our original confidence. Uh, what does that look like if we hold to our original confidence? We talked about this last week in that little list of how to know that you're really part of the household of God. Well, think about your original confidence when you first came to Christ. If you came to Christ as a teenager, or maybe as an adult, this would be easier for you to remember than if you came maybe when you're eight or ten years old. But if you remember the time when you first came to Jesus and he became really real to you, and you knew that you knew that you knew that your sins have been forgiven, that's your original confidence. That knowledge that you had of, wow, I've got this promise in Jesus, and I'm going to heaven someday? That's your original confidence that he's talking about here. The word that he actually uses is this Greek word, hypostasis. It, it literally means that which stands under. Think of a superstructure, an undergirding. What is your original confidence? Well, it's this, this superstructure that you stand on, that God sent Jesus from heaven to be born of a virgin, raised on planet earth to die for our sins, to be buried in a grave, and to be resurrected by the living God and returning again one day, church. Can I get an amen out of that? Okay, that's your original confidence. That's your superstructure that you stand on in the face of everything else that's going on in your life. You stand on this original confidence that God loves you so much, He sent His one and only Son. So that's why He says, hold fast to that. It doesn't mean it makes you saved. It means it's the evidence that you are saved, that you're standing in the knowledge of the living Son of God sacrificing Himself for you. Here it is repeated again in Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the hypostasis, the conviction of things not seen. See, your continuance in that is the proof. Uh, let's end this today. And he sets us up by repeating a verse. He does it in verse 15. As it is said... Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. He's repeating verse 7 as a setup to these questions. Something you can help me work through, we don't have to answer it today, but just in our hall hallway conversations, is how did these people get to the point where they're part of the rebellion? How, how did they find themselves inching there? I've been wrestling through that all week. How do you have the evidence of God right in front of you? And yet, you work yourself into this position where you're part of the rebellion. Without answering that, let's look at his questions. Verse 16. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? Verse 17. And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned whose bodies fell in the wilderness? Verse 18. And to whom did he swear that, he would not, that they would not enter his rest? but to those who were disobedient. He's pressing the point home with these three questions. And in every one question, he answers it with a question. God's chosen people. God's chosen people. God's chosen people. Every time, the people who were let out by Moses, God's chosen people. Who was he ticked with? 
his own people. Who did he say they're not going to enter his rest? God's chosen people. They would not enter his rest. Why? Because they disobeyed. The same is possible with us today. To live in a place where we're not at peace with God, even though our eternal destiny is secure, God can bring opportunities our way and we turn our back on them. And we become hardened in our heart. And pretty soon, today is gone. And it's tomorrow and you don't have the today anymore. I think during the 40 years of wandering, there was probably among that group of people wishing that they could have actually entered into the promised land. If they had it to do over again, they may have wanted to go back. I'm not saying all of them. I'm thinking a few. Why? They missed out on everything, church. Think of what God did when they entered the promised land. He gave them a land flowing with milk and honey. Israel is a nation today because there was a generation, everybody under 40 years of age, who was willing to go into that land after the old generation died off. How does that apply to us today? Let me give you an example of a hard heart in my own life. Um, When we launched this church six years ago, um, almost seven, it wasn't because I was jumping up and down and excited to jump in at first. Let me explain that to you. I had resigned my position at Trinity Church in 2006, stood before the congregation and said, you know what? I don't know where God's taking me to next, but I'm confident that he has another plan because I've completed what he called me to do. Everything that God asked me to do at Trinity, I had finished. And that's how I knew it was time to leave. So I resigned. I told the congregation, I'm not sure what's next, but I know God has something in mind. It was only a matter of a couple months before I got a call from a church in Indianapolis Church of 2300 that said, would you consider being the senior pastor down here? So Lori and I went down there with our daughters. I taught there. I engaged in conversation with the elders. And I believed that maybe God was opening up a door. But the further we got down the trail and the more we prayed about it, it was clear that was not a good fit. That wasn't where God had for us. Same thing happened with the church in Detroit. I thought God was taking us there. Another large church situation. And yet God closed the door. It was November of 2006 that I attended a meeting here in this building where there was a handful of people to hear a Jewish lecturer by the name of Arnold Fruchtenbaum. The church that existed in this building at that time was known as Grace Fellowship. And Grace Fellowship had a handful of people who had decided in October of that year, if God doesn't do something, we're going to be closing the doors. Now, in November when I was here, the senior pastor was someone whom I met. His name is George Butler. And he said to me, we've voted to close this facility. However, in the same breath, he said, if you'd be willing to launch a new church, we would give you this facility to do that with. And long story short, here's where the hard heart part comes in. I went out in the parking lot with a friend of mine by the name of Randy Reamer, whom I was here with that night, and said, you won't believe what that pastor just told me. He said that, if I was willing to launch a church, they would give us this facility to do that with. So Randy, to his credit, said, wow, that's cool. We should pray about that. Mark's response was, you go ahead and do that. I'm going home. True confessions from your pastor, okay? Okay, what you believe about God really determines what you do next. Because I had my sights on what God was going to do with me in another setting, and it blinded me from seeing what he wanted to do here. How can you explain a handful of 17 people launching in 2007 
to what God has done here today with over 800 people saying, this is my church, if it's not the work of God. Do you see what I could have missed out on if I allowed my hard heart to continue to play out? No, God, that's, there's giants over there. That's, do you know what it's like to go from a setting where you're teaching to 3,000 people to teach to 17 people? Okay, that's, that's a reality check, and I love it now, but that was a reality check for me. No more lights, no more cameras, no more stage production. It was just, wow, this is what church looks like in a setting like this. But my heart was saying in those first 24 hours, God, that's not what you have in mind, is it? Now, here's how God used someone to exhort me as we're supposed to exhort each other. And men, you're going to know immediately what I'm talking about if you have a woman in your life. I went home and told my wife the story that I just shared with you. And to her credit, she said to me, you know you always told me. Guys, don't you hate when the sentence starts out that way? (laughs) You know you always told me that if God ever asked you to launch a small church or pastor a small church, you'd be willing to do it. God did heart surgery on Mark Kring in those 48 hours. By the end of the second month, after two months of praying through this, I was all in and so excited to see what God was going to do. Do you know what I would have missed out on if I had said, yeah, God, those giants are bigger than I can take on. I'm going back to where it's safe. See, that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying to his Jewish brothers and sisters. You have no idea what you're missing out on. Yeah, you might save your life by going back to Judaism, but you're going to miss out on eternity with Jesus. The same is true for believers today. Not that we would miss out on eternity, but the opportunity that God puts before us. So he ends with verse 19, which is really, really somber. He says, So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. It's very interesting if you look at verse 16, 17, and 18, leaning up to verse 19 where it closes, because here's the three things that pop out. God says they weren't able to enter because of unbelief. Here's what unbelief looked like. Those who rebelled, those who sinned, those who were disobedient, and it prevented them from entering into God's rest. Here's the truth. They had every reason to expect to enter into God's rest until they got to the point where they rebelled and said, no, I'm not going there. I mean, I'm good with going to eternity with you, God, but you're going to ask me to do that? I don't think so. There's giants over there. I'm not going there. See, what you believe about God really determines what you do next. Is your God greater than the giants in your life? Trust in the Lord with all your heart, Proverbs 3, 5, and do not lean in your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. He will make your path straight. I'm going to pray kind of a dangerous prayer with you right now. That God would take us to the place where we're willing to allow himself, allow him to show himself powerful in our life. That we would be that bold. Would you pray with me that way? It's a dangerous prayer. Let me ask you to pray with me. Father, I'm I'm confident that as many people as are gathered here, that there's some that are not at that place. 
but they're where they're willing to step into dangerous territory. And I ask God that you would come alongside those individuals and encourage them. Take them to a place where they can trust you with all their heart. But for those who name the name of Christ and know that they know that they know, Father, for those who held up the cup this morning and said Jesus is real to them, I would ask that you would teach us and show us what it means to be bold on your behalf. To allow us to be in a position where you can show yourself powerful. That we would trust you to that degree. God, even as we walk out of this auditorium and we take on conversations, put us in a place where we're bold enough to exhort someone else where we know a brother or sister who's struggling or stumbling, and that we would speak truth into their life, but to speak truth with love. Father, I thank you for these men and women, for these students. Bless them for having been here and reading and studying your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.